You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, so Rob. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm very happy to have you. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are Saurabh Amari, and among other things, you are author of the book, Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It, a brand new book. I mean, brand new, like being published today, right? Correct. It's it's pub date. Yeah. How, do you, how are you feeling about that? Uh, pretty good. Just kind of want to get to, uh, to be honest, I've been, it's like- Just get to the bestseller list as soon as possible. Is that where you No, where I was going to say get to bed. Oh, get <laughs> to bed. Just, okay. Just been doing one after another of these. Well, and, you can't uh, have both. If you're going to rest, then you'll never get to the bestseller. Is that, is that exactly right. It takes tireless work. Got to hustle. Um, so anyway, uh, before we talk about the book per se, I wanted to talk a little about your ideological journey. Because uh, mm-hmm. for one thing, the book, is in some ways an ideological manifesto. Mm-hmm. Uh, and besides, you are you are pretty well known as the uh, co-founder, I guess, and an editor of this pretty new magazine, Compact, mm-hmm. which is very much an ideological magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, you are, I think, typically describes the conservative, although one could get pretty far into your book thinking that you are a raging leftist. And I want to mm-hmm. talk about all that. But first, let's let's get to the beginning of your ideological journey. Um, you used to be at the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you wrote for commentary. Uh, you were the op-ed editor of the New York Post. All of those things suggest that you may have had neoconservative leanings at one time. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that fair? Uh, I would say, especially when I was at the Journal, was when I I, I so do you have to go back a little bit further back. I was. You know, I think this is not that exotic. I was a college leftist or a Trotskyist. Um, and then I made the kind of neoconservatives 20th century journey to neoconservatism. And that is from, from various forms of of uh, leftism, especially Trotskyism, to a kind of um, it's kind of conservatism whose foundational uh, faith is that, you know, American order is is all good. And the only thing left to be done now is to make sure that, uh, you know, American liberal democratic order uh, prevails all over the world. And, mm-hmm. and the, you know, so I was pretty enthusiastic about the Arab Spring and uh, about interventions to uh, accelerate some of those uprisings and so on. But then I think by 2015-16, as the Trump phenomenon was unfolding, um, I started to voice skepticism, of course, at first muted in part because I'm institutionally in a kind of neoconservative hawkish institution. Um, but, you know, the, the, the outcome of the Arab, Arab Spring and the wider kind of um, democracy wars of the post 9-11 era, you could see with your own eyes and you had to admit that they had been disasters. So that's one of the things that prompted a, um, a shift in me toward uh, much more of a much more of a populist conservatism, a conservatism that's primarily concerned with our domestic, fraught domestic relations. And um, uh, I should, again, and to further the journey, I, around the same time, 2015-16, I converted to Roman Catholicism. And that conversion put a great deal of stress on the free market side of the, the, the my kind of formerly kind of Wall Street Journal editorial page ideology. You know, a lot of a lot of journal types and more generally the um we call them liberal conservatives or neoliberal conservatives neocons etc who were catholic they had tried to blend the catholic faith with kind of paul ryan style economics and you know i tried to uphold that for a little while but the more i sort of read papal teaching on on social issues the more i i i realized that synthesis of the of the catholic neocons like George Weigel and Michael Novak and so on is is not a tenable synthesis, and I wanted the real thing, which is much more communitarian and solidaristic. So that's, I mean, I I, I gave a long digressive answer, but that's roughly my ideological journey. Okay, and what was your religious identity before the conversion? Nothing. If I mean, I was an nothing. atheist. Yeah, I was born in Iran. I should note, um, but like many Iranians uh, of a kind of of my my and my parents' milieu, I was. Uh, you know, totally secular. My grandparents 
sort of practice, but even they had like the occasional glass of wine. And but I was not raised religiously, you know. I, I when I had to learn to recite large chunks of the Quran in 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 elementary school, it was like quite a crisis because I hadn't really um, delved into the book at all, and my parents weren't the Quran reading types. So, um, so it's 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 a it's a little bit annoying because sometimes when, especially because I've written about my I you know intellectual and spiritual journey in a memoir, etc. And so a lot, it, it's somewhat public. And so people just get this sort of quick version. They're like, oh, so he was a Muslim. And then he was, an, you know, then he was an mm-hmm. atheist. Then he was a, uh, then he was a Catholic. And what is he now? It's it, it, it not as haphazard and chaotic as that seems. You know, I was, I was basically just a secular urban kid um, in a middle class, upper middle class milieu. And then I uh, immigrated to the United States and much later that I became Catholic. Okay. And is it, possible to describe what uh what drove the conversion was it was it a single moment uh or no no something I had, gradual I, I had no immediate sort of damascene moment um uh my i've never heard that damascus turned into an adjective like that yes but <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's there um okay no and... road to damascus experience as no, no, it was just a, occasional experiences where I would go to go to the mass, uh, even when I was secular in ways that I couldn't explain. Uh, but I was drawn to um, something of this that harmony between grace and order that defines, especially the Roman Catholic uh, uh, branch of Christianity. Reading Pope Benedict's books, um, actually reading the Bible, you know. So gradually, I came to believe that uh, okay, I have a conscience. Uh, seems to constantly pester me to do right and to eschew wrong. Where did that conscience come from? There seems to be that this moral order in the universe of which I have some clue inter- interiorly. And so this is actually that it's the m- moral proof for the existence of God, which C.S. Lewis mounts in his Mere Christianity and, of course, uh, Immanuel Kant in more complex ways. I didn't, I hadn't read those authors at the time. It's, a, it's, not, it's certainly not on that point. Um, but I later learned that that particular proof for the existence of a personal God is called the moral uh, proof. So I sort of reached it intuitively. And then, yeah, I mean, at some point, I, so I was working for the Wall Street Journal in London um, beginning in 2013, I, I, if I recall. And yes, 2013. And, um, you know, I stepped into a church called the Brompton Oratory, which is very famous for its traditional liturgy, you know, the sort of, bells and smells and um, is it in latin the liturgy yes but it's the new mass in latin it's not the traditional latin. the the one that <laughs> drew me was not is is just is i'm the not no- sure i would have noticed the difference if it was in latin myself but yeah whatever. no well i i didn't know at the time either i thought i had heard some there's something called the latin mass and i didn't realize that there's the you know the tridentine liturgy the pre-1962 you know uh, uh the 1962 is the last version of it um and then there's the current mass that most Catholics attend, which is sometimes called the, the Mass of Paul VI or the Novus Ordo. And this was that mass just in Latin. <laughs> okay. But anyway, it really brought home this kind of reflections on conscience, order, tradition, etc., such that I was so, you know, I felt impelled to just go to the oratory house, which is just a um, place where the priests live and knock on the door and Asked the first priest who opened the door that I that I wanted to become Catholic, and he just said, "Very well, I shall instruct you." Well, that was nice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'd all like to have a personal spiritual tutor. Um, so, uh, so it sounds like there were kind of two things going on ideologically. There was a disenchantment with traditional conservative foreign policy that mm-hmm. was just kind of empirically based, and mm-hmm. then there was a disenchantment with traditional conservative domestic policy that grew to some extent out of this religious conversion and and i and i guess out of a particular reading of the meaning of catholicism in 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 christianity very well put yeah good summary okay and uh and let me ask you uh before we get to the book itself i mean the the if one didn't know anything about you and they're reading this book and we're told that you were still called a conservative, I think the question would arise, 
about halfway through the book, well, what part of you is conservative? I see what isn't yeah. conservative. Uh, but uh, and is it too is it too crude a character to say, well, you're anti woke? That that's conservative. I think that is too crude. In this, okay. I mean, the politics is as grown as anti woke. I increasingly um, find um, you know frustrating and downright grifty at times. And I uh, you know I, there are elements of woke ideology and practices that I find sort of silly and that ranging from silly, obnoxious to like downright sinister, but I don't make my, um, I'm not, there, there's a class of people who are like, you know, I just like the way neoliberal order was proceeding circa 2013. And I can't, we just go back to that, you know, and get rid of this woke stuff that there's, you know, my friend Barry Weiss, you know, I, just a breach for an example is someone who I would describe that way, but I have, um, you know, I have, some, I, have a, I have a deeper critique of where we are that have to have to do with political economy. And I actually find that sometimes the anti-woke stuff becomes a way to not talk about, you know, class issues, economic issues, to deeper crises and just make it about um, something that is very red meat, not justly red meat, I would say, in some ways, because there's a lot, great deal of inanity um, in the... Um, in the woke movement. So no, I would say that, um, so to answer your question, the way I'm conservative is that I, uh, it has to do with my sense of a, of, of, of a telos of a, of an endpoint of a good society that I want a society in which, um, there's human flourishing and there's a, I draw on the classical and Christian tradition to define what human flourishing looks like. We're, we're rational animals. We like to contemplate. We're social animals. We're political animals, and that means we want to exercise our political faculties. Um, we 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 flourish in family. We flourish uh, when we have time to spend, uh, you know, with the higher things, with God, with uh, our loved ones, etc. And not when we're atomized, harried, and miserable. And so, insofar as I I have that kind of a you know, again, I, I would describe it as a classical and Christian account of the common good, and that the role of politics, a function of politics, is ultimately to secure the common good of the whole, as kind of Aristotelian a concept as it goes. Uh, that is the part of me that's conservative. But conservatism for me, therefore, does not mean, you know, preserving whatever, you know, particular economic arrangements that have, you know, mm -hmm. just been handed down to us you know, since the Reagan era and saying, well, that that is it. We just got to preserve these tax rates, this free trade regime, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, um, in order to, in, to to bring about that vision that I hold dear for what society should look like, I find that um, often it's the left that has the better material critique of how we got there, of the causes. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, uh, you know, especially when you look at the New Deal tradition, has fairly decent solutions, uh, you know, kind of humdrum reforms that were nevertheless quite radical when FDR and his cohort proposed them that actually helped stabilize American capitalism and in some ways, therefore, to stabilize American culture during those kind of roughly three decades after, after World War II. And so I draw lessons from that, and I'm very happy to in other words, I'm very happy to be called, for example, as Jonah Goldberg called me a pro-life New Dealer. Um, I'm happy to accept that label. I think actually a lot of the actual New Dealers were pro-life because this was the 1930s. But beyond that, I mean, the, the ideal that that represents um, it resonates with me. And I think it's it's historically based on American economic history. It's the best response to the crises of the unhindered American market society. Um, and I, I also do think, I mean, that the ideal of the New Deal has, it resonates with, with certain Catholic ideas. So we, you know, the problem, just put it bluntly, which is the top topic of Tyranny Inc., to put it in the most blunt, is the problem of private coercion, which is something that comes about as a result of vast disparities in income and uh, power generated by the market. So it's about class antagonism. The but but the new New Deal tradition and in many ways Catholic social teaching aims not at the abolition of one class by it by another or the 
total abolition of private property, which is what you know harder left socialists would want, but rather a sort of class compromise. Um, mm -hmm. And this takes all sorts of names like social democracy or the New Deal order in the United States. I use the word the, the term political exchange capitalism, as in we have a market exchange, but we try to compass it within a broader um, political exchange between the classes, a recognition of the of the rights of of the assetless many as well, et cetera. So, no, I would not just say, well, what makes me conservative is that I'm anti woke, even as I might find some woke things irritating. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the book. Um, at the beginning of it, I was I was kind of thinking it might be about surveillance capitalism. In other words, you know, the way uh, companies use digital technology to invade our privacy and and so on. Um, but it really is. It's a critique of capitalism very broadly. Uh, and um, and that's why, as I said, uh, you know, you can get pretty far into it wondering, uh, wondering what's conservative about you. So uh, a lot of uh, I mean, maybe we can skip over the surveillance capitalism stuff because that has been so well mm -hmm. covered unless you unless you want to talk about that. I mean, I mean, the, the 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 big theme, as you said, is the just the fact that whenever there is an imbalance of power between two people uh you can't necessarily uh count on um you know market solutions to be just i guess uh the um you know you you uh so for example the the whole question of contracts mm -hmm. which i hadn't given a lot of thought to. I've never been victimized by an obscure clause in a contract I signed, maybe because I haven't had many conventional employers. But mm -hmm. in your view, this is a, a pretty pernicious feature of capitalism, right? There, there, there tend to be constraints upon workers built into contracts that they either are unaware of or don't have enough uh, power to raise questions about. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a um, a big problem in the United States. To just give a couple of examples from the book, you know, I I show the um, actually quote from an actually actual you know large company employment agreement, um, which includes among other things uh, the right of the employer to uh, not only confiscate your own personal devices if they're company owned, but even your personal devices that you own yourself. Um, if they at any time they want to examine what you have on your personal device, if you use your personal device to access, um, you know, the company network, which by the way, they encourage you to use your personal device to access the company network as a, um, or they all, you also in the same agreement, sign away your, your singing voice, your voice in general, your persona, your look, everything about you as an employee that's being recorded um, by like, if you're a salesperson or making sales calls and so forth, that's being recorded. And the contract says you, the company, your employer, it's not just for them to put it in the brochure or a training recruitment video or something like that, but that they make uh, lease your lease or license your persona, your voice, et cetera, to commercial third parties for commercial purposes you know you have an age now coming up of like virtual reality porn and you could foresee you know that your image is being leased and the contract says that you don't have the right to um sue either your employer or any third party to whom they've leased or licensed your mm -hmm. persona voice etc to in perpetuity um so so and the, the reason that comes about in that way is because typically individual employees given the nature of most markets where you have far fewer employers than you do employees, there is a vast disparity in bargaining power. And yet this kind of liberty of con liberty of contract mindset, which governs especially how the right thinks about employment, pretends like the employer and employee meeting each other are in their power is symmetrical and their their bargaining power is sort of optimal as it is, and therefore not requiring external intervention. That's, you know, because a lot of econ 101 is premised on a late 18th century sort of Arcadia of, you know, of yeoman farmers and individual artisans and mechanics. The, the, this brief period in the development of capitalism, when it actually sort of 
resembled the picture uh, laid down by the founders of laissez-faire like Adam Smith. But then by the mid-19th century, you have an industrial economy. Most markets are dominated by a few sort of giant actors. And so this this, uh, optimal relationship based on mutual kind of symmetrical power is is a fiction. It's not how most people experience your typical employment agreement. For example, when you take a job, you've typically moved across town or across the country. You've leased a new uh, vehicle or a house or what have you. Your partner, your spouse has moved along with you. And then you show up on the first day in the job and you're given this fat contract that includes this clause that you know you sign away your right to um your your persona your voice even your singing voice well most mm-hmm. people just sign that and no one or vanishingly few people say hey i don't like this clause you know could we revise it and it just that, that is just not even an option because you know the the way that the employer the power that employer now has over you because of your lease because of your ch- child care obligations your elder care obligations you know most people go along. So the contract formation is much more asymmetrical than this kind of um, conservative account of, of of labor market suggests. Mm-hmm. And we can also go into, you know, how this is used uh, to increasingly bar workers from mounting legal challenges when they have legitimate grievances. including Before we, legit- before we, yeah, before we get on. into that, let me just drill down a little. On, I, I was going to say, like, on the one hand, there probably aren't all that many cases. I mean, proportionally speaking, Mm-hmm. of kind of ordinary workers who find their company suddenly using their singing voice or their likeness or anything like that. On the other hand, you know, as we enter the uh, age of artificial intelligence, I can well imagine employers using recordings of like, uh, well, people giving tech support or any kind of customer support to train an AI uh for their replacement, right? I mean, that seems mm-hmm. to me a very plausible thing. And it wouldn't be very evident to the people whose work is being used because mm-hmm. they're just one tree and many in, in a whole forest of trees that are kind of being being chopped up, so to speak. Or, um, but I would think that's going to be a, a big, big issue. Um, and, and you're saying people have, have uh, basically a lot of workers without knowing it have already signed away their right to protest. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely right. I mean, you're, um, and it, it, it's not just this one type of clause, you know, you, you know, you, you sign away your right to sue if you're injured on, uh, in company outings, uh, you know, it's like a team, uh, team outing, et cetera, et cetera. You're supposed to play a baseball game, which by the way, they say it's totally voluntary, but, you know, try doing that, try not showing up and seeing what that does to your, to like the team player portion of your annual review. Um, you, you're, you're called to sign, sign that away. Or, uh, like I said, the surveillance of your devices. Um, and I, I mean, I think this kind of, uh, the kind of example that you raise is all too real, the possibility that, um, your voice and your persona is then leased to AI, to AI companies for further development or to Apple's Siri service. And all of it ultimately is aimed at your own long-term dispossession um, mm-hmm. as, as a worker and the loss of your job. I mean, this is all pretty sinister. So, um, and and you you do spend a little time on this issue of arbitration and how... Again, I, I would think very few workers are aware of this, but they've they've kind of signed on to how any disputes uh, between them and, and the company will be handled. And mm-hmm. often they're not handled in a way that's likely to be favorable to uh, the employee, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, arbitration is a very ancient practice. Uh, it goes back to medieval times when um, instead of going through litigation, which is expensive and heartbreaking and takes a long time, two disputing parties, like two feudal landlords would agree to submit their dispute to say the church or to some neutral mediator. So you can get uh, quicker and more um, generous in a way, uh, in terms of procedurally quicker, more generous, and uh, ultimately with greater comedy, a kind of resolution to your dispute. Uh, But uh, that practice, you know, was incorporated into American law in 1925 under something called the Federal Arbitration Act. 
And the Federal Arbitration Act, which was championed by people like then Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, um, merely aimed, uh, explicitly aimed and merely aimed in, a, in, this, uh, in the congressional history to allow merchants of relatively equal bargaining power, that's the important part, relatively equal bargaining power to submit their, to agree to submit this, their disputes to private arbitration, which is a kind of private court. It's not a courtroom. Does not, doesn't have, the judge doesn't even have to be a lawyer or have a law degree. Um, and in this way to save litigation expense on both ends, it was never intended to apply to the employment context. In fact, Herbert Hoover, when he was testifying on behalf of the law in promoting it, he wrote a letter to Congress to try to assuage uh, members of Congress that this wouldn't be used against weaker parties in a kind of take it or leave it uh, format. Yet, um, as a result of a kind of legal revolution mounted mainly by conservative justices who call themselves originalists, gradually since the 1980s, the federal the ambit of the Federal Arbitration Act has been expanded uh, to to uh, include to to the employment context, where, for example, and this is a real case which I recount in Tyranny Inc. of a, a an Ernst and Young employee at the accounting giant Ernst and Young, whose name was Stephen Morris, who, by the way, the arbitration clause wasn't part of his initial package of agreements, but this firm sent a notice to employees saying, henceforth, if you show up to work next day as a condition of continued employment, you agree to set, submit your disputes to me, through mediation and arbitration. Um, th as it happens, uh, Morris argued or alleged that he was entitled to unpaid wages under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is a New Deal law that guarantees you overtime pay and um, uh, uh, it, it guarantees you overtime pay. And so he uh, used what is a New Deal statute aimed at promoting collective bargaining and collective action more generally to vindicate his rights. But the firm said, no, remember, there was that arbitration thing you agreed to. And I say, quote unquote, agreed to, because obviously he just had to show up to, to work the next day for the clause to take effect. And it would have cost him, Ernst & Young acknowledged, it would have cost Morris $200,000 to litigate this and I say litigate again, because it's not a real court, but to push this through um, individual arbitration. So the only way for it, that it would have been rational for Morris to vindicate his rights under a federal law where he was entitled to um, overtime pay about $2,000 would be to spend orders of magnitude more. So of course that that's not rational and most people don't do it. The only way he would have been able to actually vindicate his Fair Labor Standards Act rights would have been if he is allowed to either bring a class action or at least a class arbitration. But the clause barred that, the arbitration clause. And of course, our Supreme Court, 5-4 majority, conservative majority led by Justice Gorsuch said, no, that the parties freely agreed to arbitrate their disputes. Then therefore, the liberty of contract doctrine holds that, they're, that, that, that has, they have to be bound by that, by those terms. Of course, um, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg utterly eviscerated the logic of that, and she pointed precisely to the legislative history which showed that Congress never intended for this kind of arbitration situation where it's one party that's much weaker and is told, take it or leave it, and suddenly renounces you know, his or her statutory rights, especially as a statute which is, comes out of an intention of empowering workers to do collective action has now been defanged in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of this, I mean, the fact that workers sign these elaborate contracts uh, that they can't be expected to uh, to to really go over with a fine tooth comb, and the fact that those contracts include typically, as kind of a last resort, an arbitration mechanism that's probably uh, not going to work out too great for the worker. All this explains why you get the kind of conditions that have been described in, for example, these Amazon warehouses mm -hmm. uh, where people, you know, there, there are strict limits on bathroom breaks and and so on and, and so forth. Now, as you say, the ultimate source of this is a disparity of bargaining power. I mean, Amazon mm -hmm. can say to any one worker, who, person who's applying for a job, no, we don't want you because there are a lot of roughly equally qualified people. Um, and the worker doesn't have the same leverage. And mm -hmm. of course, one solution to that is collective bargaining unions. And, you know, the, the demise of unions in the United States, uh, 
was often kind of justified by reference to international competition. So, for example, in the auto business, mm -hmm. um, they said, well, look, uh, you know, if we if we if we can if we don't uh, change the amount of power that unions are exercising over wages and so on, we're just going to lose out to the Japanese. And pretty soon there won't be any jobs in the American auto industry. And that's an argument that has some merit. But the funny thing is, like an Amazon warehouse, that logic does not apply. You can't. You know, I mean, I guess, you know, some jobs, you know, are in American warehouses and in principle could be outsourced, but not an Amazon warehouse because it's, it's, it's a way station to delivery in America. And it's uh, so, I mean, I don't know. Why, why is it? I understand why there was all this anti-union pressure. I understand it's a logical matter in, in areas subject to international competition. But it seems like that was accompanied uh by by kind of pressure against unionization in a realm where it makes a lot less sense right yes uh, you could see, i mean there's data to to think through this um automation and globalization certainly contributed to the decline of um private economy unionism in the manufacturing context right that's where globalization and automation did damage uh, but there are studies from, you know, the Economic Policy Institute, which is a left of center uh, think tank, does great work on this stuff that where, um, you know, economists will plug in uh, today's um, sort of deindustrialized conditions back back into um, the otherwise kind of the the the, uh, the shape of the labor market in the 1970s. And they find that, you know, the decline in manufacturing barely barely affects the ultimate decline, not barely, but only marginally affects the decline in unionism. In other words, uh, the the fact that manufacturing uh, was globalized was only one factor and not a decisive one in the decline of unionism. So then the question becomes, so um, yes, okay, in manufacturing, that was an issue, but you know why? Why is it? Why is it that unionization rates are so low in, like you said, in Amazon warehouses or uh, in the service industry, retail, et cetera. And so you have to come up with a better answer. And of course, the typical conservative answer is, well, American workers have realized that just unions aren't very good and uh, they don't like unions. Well, again, that's a that's it's belied by the facts, you know, depending on which study you look at, there are tens of millions of American workers who would want to, if they're, if they're given the option, who say they want to join a union, but are currently not represented by one. Mm -hmm. um, right now, unions are more power popular than they have been in, in half a century. Um, so, okay, you eliminate that. The only one that really remains, and I think it's the most persuasive one, is that you know, over the period of nearly nine decades since the Wagner Act, the 1935 National Relations Act, otherwise known as the Wagner Act, which where, you know, Congress said, not only do we want not no longer are we going to suppress um, la labor unionism, uh, but we're going to encourage it. Collective bargaining in most in these industries was something to be encouraged. In the passage of time since 1935, uh, conservative Supreme Courts, Conservative, you know, GOP-dominated National Labor Relations Board, et cetera, have gradually, gradually chipped away at the ideal of the Wagner Wagner Act, which was supposed to have a, you know, we wanted to create a mostly unionized economy. And it worked, you know, in 1945, about a third of the private economy uh, workers in the country were unionized. So now it's down to 6%. That's because it's just gotten much, much harder to successfully make it through the gauntlet that is the American labor law. So you have to first get a enough signatures on a petition about a third of the workplace to to get a, an election then you have to win the election then you have to win a contract within a year after you win the election those are the three step that's the three step dance required to uh, unionize a workplace and along the way all these kind of different um methods of barriers have been put up that make it harder and harder uh in unions were barred from being able to speak at captive audience meetings where only the employer could speak uh, employers were allowed to just sort of threatening that they would fire employees. They could sort of scare workers into saying, hey, if you join a union, we may have to close the shop. So it's just skirting the idea whether or not you're threatening or not. 
Um, a lot of, and every time they violate these, employers violate these rules, of course, the, all they get is a slap on the wrist or maybe they get another election. But by then, the message will have had its union chilling effect. So gradually, um, you know, what was supposed to have been a, a legal regime aimed at increasing collective bargaining in the workplace has paradoxically yielded an economy in which it's actually very, very hard to do that. Um, so, yes, I mean, okay, we've got to do, we've got to think about manufacturing, and there's serious talk about reshoring manufacturing, um, how to deal with automation, uh, you know, like how to keep moving our workers further up the value chain so that they're uh, they're you know dealing with uh, they're still doing valuable work and in the face of in the teeth of automation, etc. All that is fine, but you know the the degree to which we downplay just the role of you know frankly legal legal class war warfare against labor against the American labor union is uh, is pretty stark. Okay, now um, you spend a, a chapter on a particular worker at Sears mm -hmm. whose uh, whose job kind of kind of became more and more frustrating and less and less worthwhile as Sears underwent its demise. Mm -hmm. And uh, that hit me in a couple of ways. First of all, I'm very sentimental about Sears. Uh, mm -hmm. was a, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, but there was always a Sears. And plus every year, the Sears Christmas catalog would come. Uh, and uh, in fact, um, when I heard about the bankruptcy a few years ago, I, I finally went to this, the closest Sears to us before it closed and bought a lot of stuff uh, to remember it by things related to my youth or my family, you know, um, and uh, but the other the other way that hit me is that I was I just served on a jury and during the jury selection process, I was shocked at what a low yield they got and how many people said, I just can't do this. I can't afford to do this job. And it struck me that there was a time when I think more people were kind of lifers at a given company. Like I remember the guy across the street from us when I was a kid. He was a Safeway guy. He was going to be a Safeway guy his whole life. Mm -hmm. And and companies like that, I think, would actually, if you had jury duty, they would probably pay your wages while you were you had jury duty. Uh, but these days, uh, fewer and fewer people have that. So the demise of of the Sears like employment situation is, you know, I think is an important phenomenon now. Uh, you put some of the blame on a fairly recent innovation in capitalism, which is the private equity firm, because in its in it kind of in its death throes, Sears was in the hands of a private equity guy, a hedge um, fund. But but oh, he same was a hedge thing. fund guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You 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 kind of combine the two in your indictment: mm -hmm. hedge funds and private equity. Correct. Um, and uh, but I was wondering, like, isn't and I don't really know that much about the way private equity and, and hedge funds work. I mean, I know private equity, they, they like to buy companies, uh, I don't know, somehow make them more efficient in some ruthless way and then sell them or something. Uh, mm -hmm. And and they do, they manipulate debt in ways that may or may not work out uh, for everyone's good. Um, but, but my question was going to be, wasn't Sears kind of doomed anyway? I mean, the business model was deeply challenged by the coming of the online world, right? It's like the department stores generally aren't doing well. So, well, yes and no. The, the trouble for Sears actually began before the rise of the internet. It began in the 1970s when actually the firm was at its peak. That's when they just had, um, you know, they, they got the Sears Tower, which for a long time held the record for the largest, um, um, largest tallest, build, tallest the tallest, tallest building in the world in, in Chicago, et cetera. Um, but around that time, they started to neglect their core retail business and they started doing what was called the socks and uh, socks and stock strategy where not only did Sears sell you know socks like sturdy american socks but also you know um things like ins you know insurance through uh, uh, uh it's a, it's a subsidiary caldwell banker for real estate uh you know even the kind of proto internet service believe it or not that the called prodigy the discover mm -hmm. card etc these were all Sears brands. And so then, you know, this other model of shop came along that was um, salesman free. You know, we're talking about Walmart, Kmart and, uh, you know, Circuit City, et cetera. They were salesman free and um, 
you know, quite attractive on price and other stuff like that. And so uh, they lost sight of that and it took a long time and they still were printing the catalog as late as the early 1990s. So they had to suddenly adjust and it took a while for them to adjust. But plenty of other stores, you know, retail establishments continue to, you know, uh, do well. Like luxury department stores are are still quite strong and a lot of people still, you know, want to see the product before they buy it. Not everyone wants to buy stuff online. So um, the I, I do think that, you know, just at the moment when it needs retails may, sorry, just at the moment when Sears may have needed kind of rethinking its business, revamping, et cetera, uh, where it could have survived as plenty of other retailers that you can think of that have made it through that crucible of, of the early internet era. Um, it, it, Sears had the misfortune of falling into the hands of a guy named Eddie Lampert, who was a hedge funder. And what Eddie Lampert did to Sears parallels what a, a lot of kind of Wall Street firms, hedge funds of private equity are doing to the real economy. The real economy is where, you know, we so are supposed to make things that are, uh, you know, ordinarily seen as being useful and or services that are useful and and productive and not just the moving around of money on 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 between uh, different sort of complex entities using these Byzantine uh, financial instruments, which is what a lot of these Wall Street firms do. Um, so the way that uh, Eddie Lampert eroded the capital base of Sears, instead of actually investing in it, is pretty reflective uh, of a wider trend in the American economy. And just to briefly explain what he did, he would not he would not invest in anything. He briefly invested in a kind of website revamp, but then, you know, that didn't really take off. But otherwise, you know, his he was managing for cash flow, as they say, which is just to try to extract um, as much cash as possible. Uh, he would have Sears sell his own hedge fund or these entities that he set up called Seritage Fund. He would have Sears sell real estate that it already owned to his firm, and then he would rent it back to Sears um, and pocket money that way. So in short, he was asset stripping the firm. And whenever there were, you know, gradually the stores just started to fall apart. Like no one wanted to go to a Sears when there's, you know, the potholes in the parking lot, when there's fixtures that aren't repaired, et cetera. This didn't have to happen. It's because he was just extracting maximum shareholder value for short term rather than investing in the firm. And that's what we see in the wider economy, actually. Most people think, what, what, what does a corporation do? It borrows money and then uses that money to make something that people like and then sells that. And then along the way, it pays back its creditors or the bank or whoever it might be, while still retaining enough funds to reinvest in the business, which is what you need because you know your there is uh, your capital uh, wears down and you, you know your your buildings wear down. There's sort of wear and tear. You want to reinvest in the building to, to to the buildings and the people, et cetera, to keep it going. And that's what American companies used to do. The majority of American companies used to be sustainers of their uh, of their capital base. But beginning since the kind of revolution in private equity and hedge fund. And just the general takeover of the of the real economy by the financial economy, the majority of American firms are actually eroding their capital base. They return most of their uh, their earnings back to shareholders, which means they don't reinvest in the business. And you know, in this sense, it's like a plant that you don't water. Eventually, it'll it'll wither. And that's what most American corporations do. If you if you look at you know publicly traded corporations, um, you know, and you know. So w- to look at their investment behavior, the majority are currently eroders of their of their capital base. And so what what happened to what happened to Sears is, you know, the predicament of many companies. And this is because private equity and hedge funds don't have that mentality of sustaining a business where a guy can work 30 years and the community flourishes as a result. They just want to extract that, you know, maximum shareholder value, which is why ownership by private equity dramatically increases the likelihood of a firm going bankrupt. Um, and that's fine from the point of view of the private equity owners, because what they think about is they they invest in, you know, 10 firms. If nine of them go back bankrupt, but one of them they do really well with, it's all a wash and they they come out okay. But the ordinary worker community can't be like, well, we have the ordinary worker can't be like, well, I'm taking 11 jobs and hoping that one of them works out on average. Uh, likewise, communities don't think that way. They have the business here. This is the, biz- the major business in town. 
oh, you know, I, this is the one bet we've made. This is what we care about. And so they can't think in the same uh, risk profile uh, that is that comes naturally to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, yeah, there's another another thing you talk about, kind of the, the demise of local news and uh, you know, kind of crisis in journalism. Um, it's another thing that uh, some people would attribute to the inexorable march of technology and wonder whether anything could have been done about it at all. And and maybe also argue that although old fashioned local newspapers. Uh, have kind of fallen away. There actually are alternative sources of of information online and so on. Um, but you see this as kind of part of the larger uh, crisis. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, there are just to start with. You know, people think, oh, no one wants to read news anymore. There are individual newspapers that are doing fine based on the subscription model. Um, Wall Street Journal, where I used to work very early on, got into the paywall game and invested in digital and does quite well with that. Um, New, York, you know, New York Times as well. But also, actually, there are regional papers that have survived this um, this transition as well. The Boston Globe, um, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, they're all they're all doing fine. And and uh, but many, 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 many other local papers are not doing well. Um, and of course, part of this is because of uh, big techs, the um, blows to their ability to win advertising dollars. Um, and this is, you know, big tech monopolistic practice. What big tech does is it forces uh, news organizations to be on both sides of an ad transaction. What that means is, on the one hand, um, you know, the, the or rather it forces them to compete both on ad and, and content. It, on the one hand, you know, Facebook is an advertiser. So you're, you're in the market for, uh, you know, selling this or that thing, you go to Facebook and Facebook serves as your advertiser. But at the same time, and, and in that sense, it competes with traditional media companies. At the same time, Facebook is also a content provider. And if you want to get your content out there as the news organization, you are at the mercy of Facebook as well. And so in this sense is what people mean by being on both sides of these transactions is Facebook. And so that did a whole lot of damage that, you know, thousands of newspapers, including storied papers, either went bankrupt or in the case of like the Christian Science Monitor, it went to online only and a much reduced uh, shell of its former self. Um, but that wasn't all. And then private equity and hedge funds came into the picture. And private equity and hedge funds Actually, in the case of newspapers, they don't run them entirely to the ground. They turn them into ghost papers because they're managing for cash flow. And if you take over a paper and you immediately fire 70% of the journalists and you sell much of the real estate and you kind of just, it's a local paper, but all it runs is copy from uh, syndicated copy or national copy, which they can duplicate across numerous local papers. Well, that's a lot cheaper and you're just extracting a lot of cash. Uh, but the result is that in a lot of communities, either there isn't a local news outlet or the, the outlet that's there is, is what's called a ghost newspaper. It just it publishes national content that has all sorts of terrible ramification. You know, I mean, I, in the chapter on this, I just marshaled a study after study in the fact that, um, you know, when a, when there isn't a local newspaper, um, bond ratings go up for the municipality because they clearly that they, they, they um Local officials don't feel as accountable, and so they're not good stewards of public funds. Um, when uh, there isn't a local newspaper, um, people are much more likely not to split ticket vote. You know, in other words, um, it's a veritable American tradition where you say, "I'm going to vote for the Republican for governor, but I'm actually going to go for Democrats in the House." Um, and this actually it's a barrier against extreme polarization. But studies have found that when there isn't a local paper around people are much more likely to just go straight down the line. I'm going to vote on all my culture war issues. So I'm going to pick, you know, Democrat for president, Democrat for house, Democrat for, you know, local judge, et cetera, or Republican. And, you know, you this way it elevates people that really shouldn't be in office just because they're just because of whatever their party is. So voter sophistication goes down, voter engagement goes down, a sense of alienation goes up. You know, people who don't read local news also tend to be pretty kind of uh, just out of tune with our community. They don't know what's going on in their community. They don't like their community. They're just angrier, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just all uh, the ramifications explode. Um, again, 
you know, the this the sort of immediate profits that Wall Street expects when it take, takes over newspapers don't serve the wider kind of function that the founding fathers thought was so essential about newspapers. This um, such easy easy mediums for circulating knowledge and good morals, as Washington, you know George Washington put it, as about newspapers. And he they, the founding fathers cared about it so much about this issue that not only did they uh, you know obviously carve out a First Amendment specifically a freedom of the press but they went further they actually you know the through the postal service they subsidized periodicals the post the, the mailing of periodicals for a long time was subsidized uh by the by the US government even if it meant you know charging more for stamp on stamps on other sorts of mail they would do that in order to help circulate ideas and circulate information so um, again, I think a lot of things that we are used to thinking of as natural developments, oh, the newspaper was bound to die, oh, the department store was bound to die, are actually the result of you know political choices, coercive political choices made by an elite few and at the expense of the many. Okay. Uh, well, listen, we've been talking almost an hour, uh, and as regular listeners and viewers know, uh, typically after uh, that part of the podcast, which is public um, we go into what's called overtime, and that's available it. to paid subscribers of the Non-Zero newsletter, uh, which, uh, and it's easy to become one. You Google Non-Zero and Substack, or else click the link in your uh, the show notes of the podcast app. Uh, and I encourage people to do that. Also want to thank the people who have been with us so far. But yeah, let's go into uh, uh, overtime now, because I want to talk about a few things, quickly touch on foreign policy. Maybe a little bit about Donald Trump and broadly the question of what we're going to do about all this, what your uh, sure. what your prescription is. 